starting at 5 verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go round to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourselves, for for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry songs before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him, because the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. 
As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Uh, One writer uh, writes of this passage uh, that this is one of the Bible's more perplexing stories. So with those comforting words... Um, Welcome back to Samuel, and strap in for one of the more perplexing stories in the Bible. Um, Let's just remind ourselves of what Samuel as a book is doing for us. Uh, This book was breathed out by the Holy Spirit long before Jesus to help us understand Jesus's kingship, to feel what it's like to have a good and just king rule over us. Uh, We said last week, David himself's last words said it will feel like sunshine on our faces. Remember chapter 23, verse 4. And we said last week that we should leave Samuel wanting a king like David, only better than him, really. And of course, uh, we know already that that answer uh, is going to be Jesus. Um, but um, as we read this, um, um, we, we should remember and know that we are definitely followers of Jesus. We don't need to suspend uh, disbelief for a moment. But studying this book, knowing the, answer shouldn't, uh, shouldn't, knowing the answer is Jesus, shouldn't stop us from understanding, from wanting, and appreciating our King Jesus better. Uh, today we're going to land with a picture of David the King, uh, despised and min- misunderstood, uh, even by his own wife. It's not hard to see the parallels with our Lord Jesus, isn't it? Despised and misunderstood often even by us. Uh, Last week, we effectively got to chapter 2, verse 7. And this week, we'll start in earnest at chapter 5, verse 17, where Richard started reading for us. And for the mathematicians amongst you, um, you'll be aware that's over three chapters that we're effectively going to skip over. So before we dive into chapter 5, we need to feel the basic story in between. And the story between chapter 2 and chapter 5, 17... It's a, it's a Disney, um, happy, ever un, uh, happy ever after ending story. Uh, it starts with plots, um, evil plots, civil fighting and revenge. And it ends with a united nation standing behind a good, innocent, just king. 
Uh, David has gone from the king of just Judah, one tribe, chapter 2, verse 7, to the king of all Israel, chapter 5, verse 5. And even Jerusalem is now David's city, renamed such, because he's back in the capital. And chapter 5, verse 10, David is becoming greater and greater. Why? Well, the text tells us, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. He might as well, the author might as well be telling us about all the daisies in the fields. Everything is just so perfect. Happy ever after. Though it's not that the author is whitewashing David. We should remember this. Um, as though he is actually perfect. And we'll certainly see that he's not today. David, though impressive, is imperfect. Now let's pick up the story. Uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, the Philistines, they reappear. Do you remember the Philistines? Um, they are Goliath's people um, from 1 Samuel. Um, Israel's enemy, number one. And they get wind of David's recent rise to the throne. And almost like as a compliment to Israel's newly settled status, uh, they decide to attack. You see, the Philistines had been quite happy with the situation before David became king over all Israel. Israel were fighting with each other and killing each other. Um, why wade in and give them a reason to unite? But now, now things have changed. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David... David had been anointed king over Israel. All the Philistines went up to search for David. The hunt for David is on again. We might think, how ominous for David. Um, but David, he's got God on his side. And so, in a sense, ever since 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're not worried. We're not worried. Sure enough, what follows are two brutal demonstrations of the Lord's power which is our first point today. The Lord bursts out. The Lord bursts out. See, as the Philistines approach from the Valley of Rephaim, which literally means Valley of the Giants, David prepares for another giant-killing defeat. David, unlike his predecessor Saul ever did, he does everything that the king should do in war. Do you see that? He asks the Lord, he listens to the Lord. He, he does what the Lord says. And once it's all done and dusted, David even gives credit, all the credit, to the Lord. Uh, he even renames the place to enshrine the Lord's actions forever. Verse 20, Baal Perazim, meaning the Lord burst out here. How did the Lord burst out exactly? Honestly, I have no idea how it worked. No idea. But isn't it wonderful? But the Lord bursts out to defeat his enemy. He is not idle. And we're left thinking, what a mighty God who so easily defeats his enemies. Though the Philistines, they haven't had enough just yet. So they come back for another bite at the cherry, verse 22. Round two, which will turn out to be their final ever round, at least in the book of Samuel. In this second fight, uh, God has a slightly different strategy. Did you see that? Uh, this time, he basically tells enemy, uh, David's army, verse 23, to hide behind the enemy and to hide behind some trees. Maybe we think it's for an ambush or some other clever military plot. But no, it's just so they can hear when the Lord bursts out before the Philistines. I mean, just think, uh, over these two battles, what does David actually do? I mean, the sum total is almost nothing when you think about it. Verse 21, the first battle, all David really does is pick up some idols 
And second time round in verse 25, David only gets involved picking off the stragglers of the Philistines once the Lord has done the lion's share of the work. Could not be clearer. God burst out. He burst out like a bursting flood. God won the battle. God is the one, if you like, who is dangerous. Dangerous like a tsunami. Have you ever seen those videos of a tsunami sweeping across uh, a city? It's devastating, isn't it? And David has seen this power. He's heard this power as, he, as God bursts out against his enemies. And it's great news for David and Israel, isn't it? They finally have a king who knows the Lord and the Lord who can burst out on his enemies. What could ever possibly go wrong now? But this story isn't the end of the Lord bursting out as terrifyingly. The Lord won't only burst out against his enemies, but against his own people as well. But before we get to that, we need to talk a little bit about the Ark of the Lord and why David is so concerned with it in chapter 6. See, chapter 5, it's like um, David is being uh, enthroned. And chapter 6 seems to be concerned with God himself being enthroned. See, now that Israel is united behind David and the Philistines are in fact gone, David has one thing on his mind. Cue chapter 6. Let's put the Ark back in its rightful place in the city of David. See, the ark, it was a wooden chest covered in gold. Uh, Inside it were three things, three things. It had um, the stone tablets from Moses with the law on them, had Aaron's rod and some manna inside. And it's funny because uh, the ark has been the silent elephant in the room since 1 Samuel chapter 7. No one has spoken about it since it got lost back then. By now, it's been 70 years of it just gathering dust. We might remember that the ark being lost in 1 Samuel chapter 4, your handout lists some of those echoes, by the way, if you want to look at them later. And when we taught it last year, I think we said it was one of the worst days in Israel's history. Uh, Remember that child significantly named Ichabod, meaning God's glory has departed. You see, the ark was a symbol of God's very presence and his glory. For it to be lost was truly horrific. God's glory really had departed back then. And and lots more could be said about what the ark symbolized. But chiefly, we must notice what the author here points us to in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Notice, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2, second half of the verse, he's talking about the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. See, the ark is pointing to God, who alone is enthroned in heaven. And David knows it. David knows that. Uh, let's put God enthroned right at this center of our lives. That's why he's so concerned in chapter 6. That's why he's doing what he's doing. And it promised to be a glorious, symbolic moment. I mean, just look at this ceremony that David lays on in this moment, just to move this wooden box, which has been gathering dust for 70 years. 
He knows what a big deal this is, the biggest celebration imaginable. Chapter 6, verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. Last time this happened was chapter 5 for David's coronation. But this is clearly a much bigger deal to him than even that. God is kind of going back on the throne, if that's not a wrong way of putting it. So David has organized 30,000 men of Israel, plus women and children. This was a truly enormous occasion. Just think of the logistics. But sadly, there was an oversight in the logistics. Perhaps uh, David hadn't quite realized the God he was dealing with here. Uh, You can investigate this for yourselves later. There's references on your handouts next to that asterisk. But the law, which David certainly knew, it was incredibly clear. The ark should be covered at all times, carried on poles, not a cart, and certainly not to be touched. We'll see why shortly. Yet those particulars seem to not bother anybody this day, even for David. This was a happy day, a carefree day. Verse 5, all the house of Israel celebrating like one big happy family. Imagine the sound of all those instruments together, a cacophony of wild celebration. It was basically Glastonbury Festival on wheels. But verse 6, a tiny misstep, just a pothole outside Nacon's place. The new cart, it certainly didn't have any suspension. And so the ark begins to slip towards the ground. Thankfully, the attentive Uzzah was on hand to steady the precious cargo. If we'd have been there, we'd be forgiven for not noticing that anything happened at all. What with the celebrations, it was just one hand on a dusty box, after all. The ark seemingly remained safe on the cart. The festivities continued uninterrupted. No harm done. But verse 7, the music stopped. The joyful shouts turned into trembling silence. Uzzah was dead. What happened? The Lord, just as he had burst out on his enemies in chapter 5, had now burst out on one of his own people. Why? Why? Honestly, I don't know. And perhaps that troubles us. But the author doesn't give a reason here. Why was the Lord's anger kindled? Why did Uzzah's innocuous error meant he have to die? I mean, we could certainly point to the regulations that God made clear, which is the beginning of an answer. We could point to the fact that Uzzah's name literally means strong. So now the strong has been struck down by God as we've come to expect in this Samuel storyline. We could point at them not realizing who they're really, truly dealing with. David had something of a presumptuous attitude, perhaps, to God who could break out at any moment. But the bottom line is, God is God and doesn't owe us an explanation or, if you like, need to win our approval. And maybe we don't like that. 
Maybe that's hard for us. I recently read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe to my girls, and they really loved it. It's such a great story, isn't it? If you've never read it, you must. But I don't know if you remember how early on the beavers, they describe Aslan, the Jesus figure, to the children like this. Um, if, anyone's, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So the children ask whether Aslan's safe, and the reply comes swiftly back. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And others' death, it shocked David to the core. This was a very poignant moment, obviously. God is dangerous to his enemies and to his people. Even David himself needs to learn that. And everything from here on in is what David, the king, needs to learn. See, the Lord bursts out, so the king learns. So the king learns. See, David, he doesn't just give up here, like I think I might have done. Look at what happens. Look at David's reaction in verse 8. He's angry. Not at the Lord, mind, but because of what God did. There's a subtle difference there. He was troubled by it, but he didn't stop knowing God. And of course, David's great question, verse 9 how can the ark of the Lord come to me? It's not hard to picture David for three months turning that question over and over and over in his mind. Sleepless nights. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can it? In other words, how can God be with his people again? David, he still wants God right in the middle of life. For Israel, we, we might be comforted that even David, he wasn't sure what to do for three months. See, David learns not to be so presumptuous. God isn't under David's control. God isn't answer to anyone, even to David. God is holy and certainly not tame. Terrifying, perhaps. As the Lord bursts out, David learned to fear the Lord, verse 9. And shouldn't we all? This has to be the right response. If you like, this is the one thing that even David struggled to get right in these opening chapters, that God is God and to fear him as such. Wonderfully, it's, it's not the end of our story, is it? Uh, David, he abandoned the ark temporarily with a Gentile, Obed-Edom, probably just out of convenience. He was probably the next-door neighbor to Nacon. In verse 11, David waits for three whole months. Precisely what David does in that time, we're not told here. Isn't that interesting? At 1 Chronicles 15 does tell us what happened, but that's for another sermon altogether. Here we just jump to the second attempt to move the ark. Verse 12. After reports of Obed-Edom being blessed, a revised plan is made. Renewed vigor that this is the right thing to be doing. And attempt two has no disaster. The Lord doesn't burst out again. David's presumption has seemingly vanished. 
And crucially, there's no art and there's no cart in sight at all. David has learned to be God's king, to rightly fear God sat on his throne. And it's striking, isn't it, that the 30,000 men, they aren't mentioned again here. Simply the end of verse 12, David went and brought the ark up with rejoicing. And the focus this time is so striking, isn't it? After just six tiny steps, the whole operation is paused for a sacrifice to be made. And do we feel the difference in caution and and trepidation? I mean, picture the scene. Six steps, then stop. And then the blood flows. I mean, did you know there's 15 gallons of blood in an ox alone? The streets that day ran red with the smell and the sight of blood. It's not hard to see what's changed in the two moving attempts, though there are some similarities. In both, did you notice something dies? The first time, Uzzah dies. The second time, the animals die. But the first, it starts with celebration and it ends in death and fear. And the second, it starts with a death, a sacrifice, but ends in blessing. What makes the difference, we might ask? Could be the lack of the cart, but more specifically, it is David behaving much more like a priest. David is acting as a priest king here. He's bringing his people safely into relationship with the Lord who could burst out at any moment. David has learnt to fear the Lord rightly. At the priestly side of David, it's hard to miss here. I mean, verse 13, it starts with those sacrifices after just six steps. Verse 17, there's more offerings. And it's repeated again in verse 18 for emphasis. Don't miss this priestly side. The author wants us to see David not as a king wearing a crown, leading his people in a victory parade, but as a priestly figure interceding and leading his people in a totally different way to rightly relate to the God who could burst out at any second. I mean, even as the ark enters the city, David, as we had beautifully demonstrated earlier, danced before the Lord. But notice what he's wearing. No crown, no sword, no robe. End of verse 14, just a linen ephod. It's a priest's apron. And what's more, it appears that David was just wearing a linen ephod. Seems like he was half naked. I just noticed his wife's comment in verse 20 as David had uncovered himself. I mean, some have taken David's dancing um, as a mandate for liturgical dance in churches today. Thankfully, they don't apply his example consistently and so dance half naked. But that obviously is missing the point, isn't it, entirely? David has learnt to rightly fear the Lord, and so he dances. So he dances. Doesn't mean we all have to dance when we fear the Lord, of course. Now, if the story ended at verse 19, in one sense, it would be the complete story, wouldn't it? At the end of verse 19, the author, though, he extends the story by taking us into David's house to watch David arguing with his wife. 
Very unusual, that, isn't it? Bizarre. Why? David had a great day. The, the ark is in its place. Israel are ecstatic. Everyone is home and happy. But Michael, David's wife, thought it was all a bit, well, embarrassing, didn't she? Can you just hear the sarcasm? That's the way Richard read it so well earlier for us in her greeting to David in verse 20. How the king of Israel honoured himself today, uncovering himself today, before the eyes of his servants, female servants of all people, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Do you hear Michael's point? David, you're basically a streaker. How undignified, how embarrassing. What kind of self-respecting king are you? How can David's own wife not get it? Though notice, she's referred to here not as David's wife, but as Saul's daughter. Three times she's called that. Why? Well, she's become proud, strong, a Saul-like figure. She's thinking like Saul, concerned only with appearances. And she despises this king for not behaving, in her own eyes at least, like a king. See, Saul was easy on the eye, obvious as a king, the kind of king we would all choose, naturally. But as David takes off all his royal paraphernalia and wears the humble priestly apron, he behaves more like a king than ever before. Michael cares only about what people would have been thinking. She misses the point entirely. David's response is masterfully put. It was before the Lord. Before the Lord, it's been the internal heartbeat for David in this second attempt to move the ark. Just notice verse 14, David danced before the Lord. Verse 16, David um, was leaping and dancing before the Lord. Verse 17, David offered sacrifices before the Lord. And here in his response, before the Lord. David doesn't care what people think because David dance for an audience of one. This king doesn't make himself look great. He cares now only about what counts before the Lord. Of course, because this is the Lord who can burst out at any moment. I wonder if you felt the shock of verse 22 when it was read just now. It's a shocking thing to say, isn't it? After all that's happened, Verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased, literally low, humble in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honour. In other words, Michael, you ain't seen nothing yet. This king, we might say the king, will be far lower than you could ever imagine. See, there are at least two beautiful angles that David has learnt this day. Two trajectories, if you like. Firstly, David has learnt to fear the Lord who can burst out. But secondly, he has also learnt to view himself rightly before the Lord. 
almost belittling and degrading himself, knowing that only what the Lord thinks matters. How we desperately need this in our king. I mean, just imagine if King Jesus cared about anyone's opinion other than God's. He'd never have walked that lonely walk to Calvary for us, would he? No chance. So as we close, let's remember David's last words again. Why don't we turn there? Chapter 23, verse 3 and 4. Just turn there in your Bibles. Chapter 23. Page 331, in case you need a page number, 331. And let's remember again David's last words for us. When one rules justly over men, ruling, key phrase, did you spot it? In the fear of God. Then and only then, he dawns on them like the morning lights, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. It's, it's easy to imagine Jesus saying these words, didn't, isn't it? From chapter 6, verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than even this, and I will be abased in your eyes. We are to look out for this kind of king. We need this kind of king. And we are to honour him, just like David refers to the weak female girls in his response to Michael. So as we see David learning to be God's king, we can marvel. We can marvel at Jesus, who knew God's king, a God, perfectly. He was despised and rejected by many. But before the Lord, and in his eyes, that is really what it means to be the king. And that's all that really matters. Should we pray as we close? Heavenly Father, thank you for these stories, painting shadows for us of King Jesus before he even came. Also that we can learn to love and to honour him. Thank you that Jesus knows what it means to rightly fear you, more so than David ever did. And in the words of verse 22, Jesus made himself yet more contemptible than David ever did. So help us hold King Jesus in honour, just like you do. For your glory we pray. Amen.